Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, January 31st, 2021. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, last August, uh, our family moved a whopping five blocks away from Quartz Hill to Palmdale. We moved out of the house that we had been renting for uh, five years and into our first California-owned home. Now, I know, moving is never easy. In fact, it's uh, definitely on one of the top ten biggest stressors in uh, anyone's life. Uh, Some would rank it in the top three uh, as well. There's so much to do, right, to, to get your uh, items pa- folded up, packed up, boxed up, and then moved out of your house. And, and, and then you're not done, right? Then you walk back into your house and you see this. It's kind of deflating, isn't it? Oh, oh wait, maybe you prefer this? We could do it that way, right? Dust, it's everywhere. Author Robert Fulgram, in his book, All I Really Needed to Learn I, uh, to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, notes that a laboratory had analyzed dust bunnies and, uh, and they, from an average home, and here's what they found making up dust bunnies. <clears throat> uh, particles of wood, cotton, and paper, bug chunks, food, plants, tree leaves, ash, microscopic spores of fungi, and single-celled animals. But... That's just the miscellaneous category. The main thing that dust bunnies, uh, the innards of them, if you will, come from just two simple sources. People, our uh, skin and our hair, and, are you ready? Meteorites. Yeah, that's right. Disintegrated as they hit the Earth's atmosphere. Evidently, there's tons of it falling every day, right? So dust bunnies are basically made up of us, and stardust. I guess David Bowie must have been onto something after all, right? Well, it's that first part of the dust bunny makeup uh, that we're going to be focusing on today, our skin, right? We look today at a new installment of this series, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. The the series is based on a best-selling book by Dr. Paul Brand and renowned author Philip Yancey, uh, and it's the same title, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. It's a fabulous read, and I'm really only able to scratch the surface during this five-week series, uh, so I uh, commend it to your uh, reading pleasure. Nevertheless, we get today to talk about the fascinating topic of skin. Richard Seltzer once wrote, what is it then, this seamless body stocking, some two-yard square, this our casing, our facade that flushes, pales, perspires, glistens, glows, furrows, tingles, crawls, itches, pleasures, and pains us all our days. At once keeper of organs within and sensitive probe, adventurer into the world outside. That indeed is our skin. Did you know that our skin is not only the largest but the heaviest organ in the human body? The average adult has between 16 and 21 and a half square feet of skin on their body, most of it about one-tenth of an inch thick and weighing close to nine pounds in total. So here's what I want you to do. Uh, take a look at your arm right now. Go ahead. Look down at your arm. 
in one inch of skin on your arm, you will have 650 sweat glands, 20 blood vessels, 60,000 melanocytes, uh, those are the pigment-producing cells, and more than 1,000 nerve endings just in one inch of skin on your arm. Skin has two layers that are firmly glued together, the epidermis on top and the dermis below. And if you look uh, at your skin through a microscope at, at various sections, say from your scalp, your lip, your nipple, your heel, your abdomen, fingertip, every single one is going to look different under the microscope. And yet somehow this patchwork forms a continuous sheet over our bodies. But skin doesn't merely exist to give our body appearance. It's also a, a vital source of ceaseless information about our environment. I mean, just think about it. Most of our sense organs, right, our eyes, ears, nose, etc., they're confined to just one spot on our body. Skin, however, is, well, it's kind of rolled thin like pie dough, and it's uh, studded with half a million tiny transmitters all over our body, like, like telephones jammed together waiting to give the brain important news. I mean, our skin monitors a variety of items every day, wind, particles, parasites, changes in pressure, temperature, humidity, light, radiation, you name it. You know that touch is one of our most complex senses. As every square inch of our body uh, has a different response to touch. The soles of our feet, thickened by a daily regimen of abuse, they don't report in until a weight of 250 milligrams is applied. The back of the forearm, that's triggered by 33 milligrams of pressure. The back of the hand, 12 milligrams. The really sensitive areas on our body, the fingertips, 3 milligrams, and our tongue, just 2 milligrams to register the weight. Now, a wise mosquito would land on our forearm, not forearm, not our sensitive hand, uh, if it wants to come and go undetected. Not to mention that our sense of touch changes constantly with our environment. Dr. Brand talks about the skin's ability to adapt. When, when even a small amount of weight, let's say, is lowered onto our forearms, right, the sensation of weight stays for about four seconds, and then it fades. And, and, and we literally no longer feel the weight that is there on our arm. Our body filters out the messages coming from the nerve endings in our forearm and decides that there's no evident danger. And so involuntarily, we lose sensation of that weight, at least until the weight is removed, at which time our brains report a change in pressure on our skin's surface. Dr. Brand comments, I experience skin's adaptation whenever I lower myself into a hot bathtub. I run the water so hot I can barely stand it and gradually lower my body, first reacting as if I'm easing myself into a patch of stinging needles. But within 10 seconds or so, my body has adjusted and the same water actually feels soothing and comfortable. Our skin's ability to inform helps us understand one of the spiritual truths that we can learn from our skin, right? That we as Christians in the body of Christ have. We're, we're called to be the skin of Christianity so that we may be sensitive to the people that we come in contact with, right? We can't, as Pastor John mentioned in his sermon, we can't just move through life focused only on ourselves. That always ends poorly. But we're called by God to be aware of those around us. 
to sense when others are in pain or in need or experiencing joy, and then to come alongside them in that process. It's one of the driving factors behind Jesus, right? That God himself chose to establish a tangible presence here in the world when, when, where he could feel the same thing that we and others feel. That Jesus lived and suffered and loved and died constantly being aware of those around him and responding to whatever it was that he perceived. You see, the ability for Christians to be sensitive is critical to who God has called us to be as the church. And then, by the grace of God, that we might have the courage to act on what it is that we pick up from the needs around us. Reading through the Gospels, it's easy to notice that Jesus touched people quite a bit. I mean, not just uh, figuratively, he literally touched people quite a bit. He, his hands reached out to touch the eyes of the blind. He wasn't afraid to touch the skin of a person with leprosy or the legs of people who were lame. Or when a woman pressed against him in a crowd in an effort to get, uh, to get healed, he noticed and said, who was it that touched me? And then we have today's scripture reading. And thanks again, Jack, for doing an amazing job in reading that for us. Mark 10 Verse 13, people were bringing little children to Jesus in order that he might touch them. I love this passage, right? The parents or grandparents took their children to Jesus for the specific purpose of having him touch and bless them. Why? Because there is power in our touch as humans, and especially from the touch of the Savior. Jesus' bodyguards, however, uh, otherwise known as the disciples, uh, they were thinking that the kids must be bothering Jesus or at least not important enough for him. So they tried to stop the kids from coming any closer. But Jesus actually scolds the disciples for speaking harshly to them. And he warmly reaches out to them. And verse 16 says, And Jesus took them up into his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed him. Because Jesus knew children were important to God, and he knew that touch is important to all of us as humans. Dr. Harry F. F. Harlow was a professor at the University of Wisconsin in the 1950s, and he did this amazing research with baby rhesus monkeys. He noticed that the monkeys seemed emotionally attached to these uh, cloth pads that were lying in the bottoms of their cages. And they would caress the cloths, they would cuddle up next to them, they would treat them uh, much uh, like like children treat a teddy bear. And when the cloths were removed once a day for cleaning, the monkeys got visibly upset. Well, over time, uh, Dr. Harlow perceived that the monkeys raised in cages with cloths on the floor, they grew huskier and healthier than monkeys that were raised in cages that were just empty, that were just simple wire mesh floors. Was it the softness, the touchability of the cloth, was that an important factor? So Harlow constructed this ingenious surrogate mother that he made out of terry cloth with a light bulb behind her to radiate heat. And the cloth mother also featured a rubber nipple attached to a milk supply from which the babies could feed. And the baby monkeys adopted her with great enthusiasm. Right? She was always comfortingly available and, unlike uh, uh, real mothers sometimes in life, never roughed them up a bit or pushed them to the side. 
After proving that babies could be raised by inanimate surrogate mothers, Harlow next sought to measure the importance of the mother's touchable, tactile characteristics. So he put eight baby monkeys in a large cage that contained the terry cloth mother, but then he added a second mother, this one made entirely out of wire mesh with no cloth on it at all. You can see in the pictures there. Harlow's assistants, controlling the milk flow to each mother, taught four babies to nurse from the terry cloth mother and the other four to nurse only from the wire mesh mother. And each baby could only get milk from the mother that they were being trained to receive from. Well, a startling development occurred almost immediately. All eight babies spent almost all of their waking time, 16 to 18 hours per day, huddled next to the terry cloth mother. They hugged her, they patted her, they perched on her. Monkeys assigned to the wire mesh mother, they only went to her for feeding. Um, And then they scooted back to the comfort and protection of the terry cloth mother. When they were frightened, all eight would seek solace by climbing onto the terry cloth mother. And this famous photo that you see here even shows one of the monkeys clinging to the terry cloth mother with its hind legs, but then stretching out mightily to feed from the tube on the wire mesh. Harlow concluded, we're not surprised to discover that contact comfort was an important basic affectional or love variable. But we did not expect it to overshadow so completely the variable, variable of nursing. Indeed, the, the disparity is so great as to suggest that the primary functioning of nursing is that of ensuring frequent and intimate body contact of the infant with the mother. Clearly, he finishes by saying, man cannot live by milk alone. In other experiments, some baby monkeys were raised in cages that only had the wire mesh mother, and they too approached her only for feeding, but many of these babies didn't survive. And those who did, they reacted to stress by cowering in a corner, screaming, or by hiding their faces under their arms. Anthropologist Ashley Montague, in his seminal book, Touching, found that close physical contact with the mother animal was essential to the normal development of young creatures. Except for humans, all mammals spend great amounts of time licking their young. And and animals will die if they're not licked after birth. They never learn to eliminate waste as just one of the consequences. Montague concludes that licking isn't uh, for cleanness, but it's for essential tactile stimulation. Skin not only conveys information about the world, but it helps us perceive basic emotions. Am I loved and accepted? Am I safe or in danger? Can I trust those closest to me? I think that's been one of the most difficult parts of this global pandemic, right? Beyond the, merely the loss of handshakes and high fives, hugging has gone underused this past year. And for good reason, of course. But for those of us who live alone, this lack of essential touch has had deep, deep repercussions. The Touch Research Institute at the University of Miami School of Medicine says it's carried out hundreds of studies into touch. And according to a 2006 newspaper article entitled, How the Power of Touch Reduces Pain and Even Fights Disease, the Institute reports that it's found evidence of touch's significant effects, including faster growth among premature babies, 
reduced pain in people's lives, decreased autoimmune disease symptoms, lowered glucose levels in children who had diabetes, and improved immune systems in people who had cancer just by touching. Maybe that's why Jesus so frequently touched people, including children. I mean, he knew that, yes, healing was conveyed through the power of touch. And he could have done mass healings, I'm sure, right? He could have organized large crowds into various areas of need. Okay, uh, paralyzed people over here, blind people here. Uh, If you got a fever, come over here. Uh, Leprosy way over there. And he could have like waved his arms like some magic wand and healed a whole bunch of people instantaneously. But that's not the way Jesus worked. Jesus touched individuals. His mission wasn't to heal as many people as possible. His mission was to convey God's love and grace, and touching is often involved when we share our love with others. In his book, Dr. Brand tells uh, the story about an interaction he had with a leprosy patient in India uh, shortly after they opened a new clinic in this one particular area of the country. So he was examining the hands of this young man, trying to tell him in a broken Tamil language that uh, they could halt the progress of the disease and perhaps restore some of the movement to his hands, though they could do little about uh, the facial deformities that he had. Now, Dr. Brand tried making a joke about it and said, you know, your face is not so bad. And then after giving him a quick wink, he said, and it shouldn't get any worse if you take the medication. After all, we men don't worry so much about faces, right? It's the women who fret over every bump and wrinkle. But instead of the expected smile, Dr. Brand saw the man begin to shake with muffled sobs. Uh-oh, did I... Did I say something wrong? He asked his assistant in English. Did did he misunderstand what I was trying to tell him, maybe? And she spoke briefly to the man in Tamil and then said, no, doctor. He says he's crying because you put your hand on his shoulder. And until he came here, no one had touched him in years. So what about us, friends? How, How are we using the gift of touch? Are we conveying love and acceptance and grace in the ways that we touch our family members and friends, those in need around us? And I I understand that some families and some uh, cultures and some ethnic groups tend to be more, shall we say, touchy-feely than others. And granted, many of us haven't had the opportunities to uh, touch the ones we love this last year because of COVID, but maybe... Maybe our gift of touch will be one of the aspects of life that we have a far greater appreciation for once these extreme restrictions because of the pandemic are lifted. Especially for us as followers of Jesus. There's one final aspect of skin we need to examine before finishing today, and that's the uh, defensive nature that our skin provides for us, right? Think about the area of waterproofing. That might be one of our skin's most crucial features. 60% of our body consists of fluids, and these fluids would soon evaporate without the moist, sheltered world that is provided by our skin. Without skin, a warm bath or a swim in the pool would be fatal. Fluids would rush into us like water over a flooded spillway, swelling our bodies with liquid, diluting our blood, and waterlogging our lungs. 
Skin's tight barrier of shingled cells fends off such disasters. And modern civilization sure taxes our skin's capacities. We scrub with harsh detergents and soaps. We swim in chlorinated pools and spas. We spill kerosene on our hands as we light our barbecues. We clean paintbrushes with turpentine. And yet somehow, through all of that, our skin survives. Skin is also a frontline defense against the hordes of bacteria and yeast that pepper its surface. And never in my uh, life have I been more aware of bacteria on my skin than this past year, right, with COVID and, and how we're all hand-washing for 20 seconds at least every time. Dr. Brand writes, each of us carries as many bacteria on our skin as there are people inhabiting this planet, And skin uses chemicals, electronegative charges, and an army of defending cells to keep the marauders at bay. And we say, praise God for that, right? I mean, for most of human history, mites, fleas, lice, bedbugs, oh, they were just an accepted part of the skin's landscape. I even learned this week about an eight-legged creature that's just a third of a millimeter long called uh, a Demodex folliculorum. They bury their way alongside our hair shafts, and they love making a home in our eyelash follicles. Ophthalmologists find this cigar-shaped mite, apparently harmless, on almost every single person they examine. And trust me, you do not want to see the real-life pictures of this creature. I picked this one because it was the least uh, one to give you the heebie-jeebies. But kids... If you're going to Google this to look later, this is how you spell it, D-E-M-O-D-E-X-F-O-L-L-I-C-U-L-O-R-U-M. Seriously, it's a rough world out there, and our epidermis provides a continuous rain of sacrificial cells. It's estimated that we lose 50 million skin cells every day, which comes out to about nine pounds of dead skin a year. Just Shaking hands or turning a doorknob can produce a shower of several thousand skin cells, uh, which takes us back to the opening uh, of this message, right? And how dust muddies are mostly made up of skin and hair. Oh, and don't forget stardust. Of all the organs, though, skin, they might be the most sacrificial. It's no wonder that a quarter of all general practitioners' patients come because they have skin ailments. Skin absorbs incredible abuse to maintain the delicate balance of our vital organs inside, which cannot tolerate the changing environment like our skin can, which, of course, takes us back to Jesus, Hmm. the one who embodied what sacrifice means, the one who willingly gave himself out of love to a world that really didn't understand what he was all about. And here we are. We who claim to be his followers. Nobody's perfect. But are we following his example? Are we using the gift of touch to bless and not to harm? How are we putting the needs of others ahead of our own? How are we using our skin to love the amazing people that God has placed in our lives? At Palmdale United Methodist Church, we say every week that we... Our deepest desire is to be inspired by Jesus to love. May it be so for all of us. Amen.